You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Her Money. It's Jean Chatsky from New York on what's a very rainy day when we're coming to you. I hope it's better wherever you are and whenever you're listening to this. We are going to bring you a mailbag show today. We've got a ton of questions that have been pouring in on a variety of topics, sometimes in our short Q&A sections, Kelly Hultgren and I don't get a chance to air them all out. So we wanted to give them a little room to breathe this morning and make sure that we're giving you exactly what you need. Because my philosophy on personal finance has been, although getting an education is necessary and truly needed, what brings people to personal finance programming and books and shows is often that you got a problem. You've got something going on in your life and you just need an answer. And quite frankly, you'd like it right now. So we're going to do our best to do a little bit of that for you today. But before we get there, there is one question that I know is on many, many minds right about now. April 1st, you all got your college acceptance letters, or at least many of your children perhaps did. Your financial aid offers have been rolling in since then. They'll continue to do that for the next week or so. And you've got to figure it out and make a decision to let which college know you're attending. Tell the others, thank you very much, but I'm going elsewhere in a very short amount of time. And that's not an easy calculation to run because these financial aid offers are often very, very confusing. So we've asked Kelly Peeler, who is the CEO and founder of NextGenVest, which is a New York-based startup that's helping thousands of students navigate these financial aid decisions. We've asked her to come back to the show. She's been on with us before. We're going to spend about 10 minutes with Kelly really getting to the nitty-gritty of how do you line these letters up one against another, how do you evaluate them, and how do you make the best decision for you and for your family. Hey, Kelly, welcome. Hi, how are you? Thanks for coming back. Absolutely. Happy to be here. You told us students receive, on average, five different financial aid packages from individual colleges. That's that's a lot to have to choose among and between. Yeah, I mean, um, right now is kind of an emotionally tense period for a lot of families across the country where you're getting into colleges or getting rejected from colleges, which is comes with its own kind of range of emotions. But then you also are getting the tuition bill for those top colleges that you want to go to. So each individual college will send you what's called a financial aid award letter, which is basically a breakdown if you've gotten into that college of the scholarships, the grants the loans, basically the, the full tuition cost for that college. So it's important to be 
um, weighing obviously the cost of the college with all the other factors when getting accepted. And these letters are not consistent in format. It's not like the common app, right? Each college has its own format. And that's something that is, um, frankly, very overwhelming to a lot of families. They will get you know, they're different colors, they're different formats, um, they categorize things like loans differently, they show total costs in different equations. Most of them, um, actually, it's hard to find, you know, the interest rates of the loans on the letters themselves. So basically, the, to just sum it up quickly is you really have to pay attention to these and really give them each each individual offers their own due um, and fully understand them because we see thousands of families actually not fully understanding how much they would take out in loans before signing on the dotted line. Okay, so let's give people some tactical advice here. You've got your five letters or four or seven or whatever number you got. What do you do? Think about fully understanding and categorizing each individual letter in comparison with all the other offers that you've gotten. So what we recommend is to like literally lay them all out or create a spreadsheet. And again, we're happy to to help families do this and compare aid packages, but to actually put them in the same categorization. So if you look at one, um, you can just take one financial aid letter that you would get is to look down it and see things like scholarships, grants, federal loans, and then looking to see if there's a funding gap to see if you would have to take out what you know, a private loan or to pay with getting a part-time job or something like that. So um, it's really important to compare all of them first. So we've got loans, we've got grants. What's best? At the top, you'll usually see things like scholarships. So scholarships can be broken down into both need-based scholarships or merit-based scholarships. And so um, you'll normally see like the name of the school there um, or a fellowship program, and that's a scholarship coming from the university itself. So um, what's important to note here is actually reading the fine print of the scholarship itself. So, um, for example, you might have to keep a certain GPA. You might have to have a similar financial situation over the four years. It might not be a four-year scholarship. So it's really important to actually fully understand the terms of that scholarship. And mind you, scholarships are free money from the university, so you don't have to pay those back. The next category are things like grants. So you can get a grant from the university or you can get a Pell grant, um, which you would have been granted if you had filled out the FAFSA. So this is just kind of a quick plug. If anyone who's listening to this has yet to fill out the FAFSA, you absolutely should, and you can still do it. Um, so it's really important, and we really encourage every single family, regardless of income, to fill out the FAFSA um, so that you might be eligible for qualifying for things like Pell Grants. You just said you could still fill out the FAFSA. There are a lot of people who are listening who are thinking, I didn't do this at the time of application. I am sunk. So explain. Sure. So the FAFSA, you can kind of just think of the FAFSA as the holy grail for getting um, free financial aid. So every year, families leave about $2.7 billion of free federal aid, meaning money from the government, unclaimed because they do not fill out the FAFSA. So a couple of changes to the FAFSA this year. It came out in October, which was a big change this year. Um, that being said, you still can fill out the FAFSA. For this year, you can still fill out the FAFSA. For this year, yes. Absolutely still do it if you have not. And once you submit it, is to just make sure to follow up with the universities that they have your updated FAFSA. 
Okay. So we've got the scholarships, we've got the grants, then come the federal loans. And federal loans are better than private loans, correct? Yes, absolutely. And that has to do primarily because of the, they have lower interest rates than private loans. So the difference between federal loans, meaning money from the government, um, versus private loans, meaning loans from a bank like a Wells Fargo or a Discover or a Citizens Bank tend to have higher interest rates and require things like a cosigner. But make no um, mistake, so- federal loans are not free money. I mean, that's, that's absolutely not. Definitely not free money. If, if you see the word loan, you 100% have to pay it back plus interest. That being said, federal loans tend to have a lower interest rate than a private loan. Okay. After we look at the grants and the loans, what else are you going to see and how else should you be comparing? To the point on federal loans, there's a few different differences between them. So you might see things like subsidized loans or unsubsidized loans or a parent plus federal loan. And the difference between them really has to do with when and the amount of interest you would be paying on those. So really quickly for subsidized loans, that means you wouldn't be paying interest during college. For unsubsidized loans, that means you would. And parent plus loans tend to have a slightly higher interest rate and also require having a good credit score um, for the cosigner, meaning the parent. Okay. All right. So we've laid it all out. We've compared. We know which offers are better than the others. Then you say pick your top choice and try to negotiate. Can you go into a little more detail there? Sure. So again, this is something that a lot of families or college counselors don't know that you can actually do, but we've uh, at Next Invest, we've had really great success helping families and students do this. It's, of course, not a guarantee, but you might as well try. And just for reference, last year, we helped students negotiate $270,000 in tuition costs that they didn't have to pay or take out more loans for. So what you can do is put together a one-page letter. We personally help families customize these letters to sort of state their case in a, in a positive way and then follow up with the financial aid office. So the people who you're sending this to are the people who issued you your financial aid award letter, um, which is the financial aid office. So you want to kind of always follow up and make sure that they've gotten it um, so you can actually get an answer. So the, the reasons why they might give you more money are kind of fall into three buckets. One is because if you sort of qualify um, for a change in financial situation. So say a parent loses a job Mm -hmm. or you have huge medical bills that just came up. If you had filed your FAFSA earlier in the year, which would have dictated the financial aid package you've just received, that's really only a snapshot of your financial picture at one given time. So if that's changed, you should absolutely notify the university to say, hey, our financial situation has changed can you take another look at our um, our family's finances and see if we would qualify for more aid? Bucket number two is um, the university might actually really want you want your student to come to their college. So um, say you got into a couple great schools, you might be able to say, I, you know, I really want to go to school A. I love the campus. I love the um, fellowship program that I'm in. I love the major. Um, but I got these other offers from other universities. Would it be possible to get more aid because I really love to come to college A? So we've seen success with, um, with that bucket number two in that capacity. And then bucket number three is really I like to tell families to think about financial aid as kind of like a pie. So a university will have, you know, 
only a set amount of dollars for financial aid, and things like enrollment numbers might be a little off. So they might have fewer students enroll that year, um, and basically there might just be like a few extra slices of financial aid left over before all tuition payments are actually in. So it's always kind of worth checking in to say, you know, I really want to come into your, this university. I got a better financial aid package at another college. Do you happen to have any additional financial aid that could be extended? So try because uh, as opposed to taking out more loans than, than would be necessary. And you need to try sooner rather than later, right? I mean, when it comes Absolutely. to the school's own financial aid that they're giving you, that the government is not giving you, it is a limited amount. And the quicker you are to the table, the better. Yes, it's something where, you know, this is kind of a hectic time for families. And we really, um, I, we, we absolutely empathize with everyone, but you kind of have to stay super organized if only for the next couple of months and really kind of be on top of it because you're going to be getting lots of, lots of emails, lots of letters in the mail, um, all different formats again, lots of ranges of, of emotion. Uh, but it's really important to stay on top of it and actually do that little last bit of effort to see if you would be able to get more aid. Fantastic. And again, if people need help, what do they need to know about NextGenVest other than the fact that it is free? So everything is over text message. So we primarily work directly with students, though parents sometimes use the service as well. But uh, anyone can go to nextgenvest.com. That's N-E-X-T-G-E-N-V-E-S-T.com and um, sign up over text message and you get essentially like your own personal assistant who will help you, whether it's 11 o'clock on a Sunday evening or 7 a.m. on a Wednesday morning, help you answer all these questions and actually customize things like appeal letters for you and walk you through the whole process all over text message. Nextgenvest.com for help for anybody who needs it. Kelly Peeler, thanks so much for doing this with us. Absolutely. Good luck. Appreciate it. Thank you. And good luck to all the families who are dealing with this as well. Before the other Kelly and I get to your questions, just a brief word to remind you all that her money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We know that we all deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. So Visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Kelly Peeler. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. Again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. So Kelly Hultgren, the other Kelly. The first Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hi there. Hi, how are you? I'm really good on this not so nice day. Not so nice day. And I know. I keep feeling like if we just say it enough, it will. The sun will, the sun will pop come out. out. Um, you were telling me you had a nice weekend with your son. I did. He came in from um, L.A. for the weekend. This is the first time he's been home in almost eight months, which is ridiculous. What was the first thing he wanted or needed to do? He wanted to go to Spaccarelli's for Italian mm-hmm. food. Yep, I knew it was going to be food. He wanted to see the dogs, all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the one at his dad's house and the, the ones at his dad's house and the one at my house. He took a nap. <laughs> well, that's like the comfort of being at home. Yeah. I feel that way too. When I go home to Arizona to visit my family, it's, it looks like naps. It looks like Costco steaks. Uh-huh. My, my mom knows like that is the first meal Costco that I would steaks. like to have. Yep. 
Um, it looks like a lot of laying out by the pool. Like they're just yeah. like a list of things that make me so happy every time I go home. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I want to get to the questions, but I do also want to point out just in the interest of a meal that was a such an incredible value. We could not believe it when the check came. We took him back to the airport in New York yesterday. He was flying out of Kennedy and we decided on the way that we would be adventurous and go to Flushing for Chinese food because Flushing is a haven of amazing Chinese food. And so we were looking for dim sum mm -hmm. and I found this dumpling place Um where dinner for four was $38 and we were stuffed. I mean, and we, it was, it was delicious. It was all carbs. It was, you know, it was dumplings yeah. and scallion pancakes, which oh, were yum. like scallion pancakes with a little mushu beef in the middle. Ooh. It was, it was outrageous. I will give you the address of this place. I, I, you'll need the address because otherwise you'll never <laughs> find it. You, there, there's no sign in English. It's, you know, a sign that's in Chinese, mm -hmm. but it was spectacular. And, and Elliot said as we were leaving, we should do that every time we go to the airport. And I'm thinking, I go to the airport so no. often, <laughs> that would not be a good idea for me. Anyway. Too many dumplings. Moving on. Okay. What do you have? Our first question is from Emma. She sent us an email on her medical school debt. She writes, I am a medical resident who graduated with $200,000 in medical school debt at 6.8% interest. They are all federal debts, and I am on the income-based repayment plan. Current resident salary is $50,000, paying $300 a month to her loans. I am enrolled in public service loan forgiveness. Yay, I was hoping mm -hmm. that she said that. But I'm worried that this generous program may disappear. I've completed two out of the 10 years. Do I cross my fingers, keep paying the minimum, and hope that loan forgiveness is still there in eight years, or do I refinance, which then excludes me from being able to do PSLF and try to aggressively pay down my loans? I'm worried that if I only pay the minimum needed for PSLF and then loan forgiveness goes away, I will be left paying tens of thousands more in interest than if I refinance. So income-based repayment and public service loan forgiveness can go together, but they don't have to go together. And so let me just take a step back. Public service loan forgiveness is for anybody who's working in a helping profession, essentially. And the government basically says, if you do this for 10 years, we will wipe away the balances of your loans. It's great for doctors, because by the time doctors go through their residencies, their fellowships, if they do it at a not-for-profit hospital, they have so far run the clock on that public service loan forgiveness that they're way into it. Six years, eight years. In some cases, they only have to do a couple of additional years and they're done. I would say don't refinance. But if you're feeling like you're able to pay back a little bit more of this loan and you want to do that just in case, you could get yourself out of income-based repayment and into a basic graduated repayment plan that will scale up with your income that also will work with public service loan forgiveness and might make you feel better on the back end. The other thing I'd like to say is that I've been in front of groups of doctors and medical students a number of times talking about this specific issue. And when 
students decide six or eight years into the clock that they're going to abandon public service loan forgiveness, it's because they've gotten a very high paying offer with a private practice that allows them to really wail on those student loans. Um, I also have not heard anything about this going away. So my fingers are crossed like yours are, but I just imagine that anybody who's already in it would have to be grandfathered. We would all have to hope for that. And good luck with that. Yes, good luck, and thank you for submitting your question. Our next question is from Melissa, who just started her first adult job. She says, I just started my job as an attorney, and my firm doesn't start a match on the 401k until you've been there for a year. I'm 26. I have a Roth IRA with about $11,000 in it, and I have no debt. My question is, should I still contribute to the 401k my first year or just fully fund my Roth IRA and HSA until the match will start on the 401k? Well, it's easier, certainly, to just fund the 401k. And I would say, as long as your options in the 401k are good, and as long as you feel comfortable with the plan, I'd probably do that. The 401k offers the ability to put away more money than the Roth IRA. In a Roth IRA, you can only put $5,500 a year unless you're 50 or older, and then you can kick in an extra $1,000. In a 401k, you can put in almost three times that. So I'd say go 401k, just start it rolling. Once you are eligible for the match, that'll be a nice bit of extra money, and you'll get yourself in the habit of doing it. And by the way, I love the fact that you are also automatically contributing to your health savings account. I think a lot of people don't think about that as something that should be another automatic payment every month, but that's the way it works best. Thanks, Alyssa. We have another millennial question from Liana. She's looking to buy a home. She writes, I am a single 29-year-old and starting to think about buying my first home. Where do I even start? So far, I've been only working on boosting my credit score to get the best possible rates. Are there any good books you recommend to read to get started? Oh, I love this. I had a lunch. I'll digress for just a <laughs> second. I had a lunch last week. I'm on the board of an organization at the University of Pennsylvania where I graduated from, where we mentor kids who are coming out of college. And we have a lunch once a year where we not only have college seniors, but we have former college seniors who are now affiliated with this network. And one of them, a, a young woman named Jess Goodman, who is now editing personal finance and life content at Cosmo, told me, she said, my friends are all listening to her money and her friends are all millennials. And I just love that they're finding it so valuable. So I'm happy that you you sent in this question. I love that you're thinking of buying a house. I love that you're thinking of doing it on your own and you're not waiting for life to start. And I would say start on Realtor.com or Zillow. I find, and I do this for fun on the weekends, <laughs> I just like to look at real estate listings. And I think you learn an awful lot just by comparing and contrasting, diving into various neighborhoods you think you may want to go. Once you get comfortable on Realtor.com or Zillow, then start going to open houses. And you're trying to get a feel for what your money will buy. You, you certainly want to continue working on that credit score. You want to be putting some money aside for a down payment, and that money should be in a liquid account because you're going to need to use it in the next few years. You don't want to be investing that money, but it sounds like you're doing great. As far as books go, I'm trying to think if there are any that I would 
point you to specifically, you know, my book, Make Money, Not Excuses, which is for women, has a chapter on this. Get a Financial Life by Beth Kobliner, who was recently on to talk about her new book for parents who are raising mm-hmm. money smart kids. Her book has a good chapter on this. And there's a writer named Elise Glink, I-L-Y-S-E, Glink, G-L-I-N-K. She's based out of Chicago. She's been writing about real estate for many years. She's really smart about it. So Google Elise and see um, what she's been saying as well. But um, good luck with this and let us know how it goes. It's really, really exciting. Really quick, back to the score. What is the score that we should be working towards? You want a score in the 720 and up range. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a good score. 760 and above is even better. Um, You know, I hear from people who have scores of 800 to 850. Let me just be perfectly clear. My score is not 800 to 850, (laughs) but 720 and up, you're doing just fine. Excellent. Thank you. Our next question is from Twitter, and I am so sorry in advance if I totally butcher your name. It's really pretty. Zaya Bombre on Twitter is trying to reach her seventh grade students about savings accounts and simple interest. And she's wondering if you have any ideas or free resources for trying to teach her students. Well, first, I'm going to point you to Your Money. And Your Money is a project that I work on with the um, folks at the PwC Foundation and the folks at Time for Kids. It's a once a month magazine that goes into classrooms of about 2 million school children. Unfortunately, it goes to 4th, 5th, and 6th grade classrooms. Fortunately, (laughs) it's free Mm -hmm. and it's available online. So I would say go to Time for Kids, look under the past issues of your money. They're all there. We've Mm -hmm. got several years worth and you can just download them and you can print them out and you can use them with your students. That's a good way to go about it. I've also seen some units that focus on this in the curriculums that are available at jumpstart.org. Jumpstart.org is a clearinghouse of financial education curricula, and you can go on there and you can find games that fit into your wheelhouse. You can find lesson plans, and it's all available for free, which is really, really nice. Excellent. And I used our hashtag, hashtag hermoneypodcast. So if you send us a tweet, that is the one to use. Thank you. Alicia sent us an email wondering, what are the steps she needs to take in order to get her retirement on track and start building a savings as a single mother making around $33,000 a year? She writes, I recently got my taxes back and I am paying down my debt to build my credit score. I had filed bankruptcy about five to six years ago, but I am worried if I don't take the correct steps, I will lose this chance to get my finances together. Well, again, such smart questions and good for you. You know, people think bankruptcy is the end of their financial lives. It really isn't. I mean, by the time you're six years down the road, you are so far past it. You're moving beyond. But even a couple years out, people really find that they have the ability to rebuild their financial lives. I would say the best thing to do is to get into the habit of saving whatever you can for tomorrow and putting that money to work for you in some sort of a retirement plan. So yes, using that tax refund to pay down your debt and build your credit score is a good thing to do. It's a nice opportunity. We know that tax refunds are averaging 
about $3,000 a year, and most people this year tell us that they are either using the money to pay down debt or to build savings, which is great. Um, not going on some sort of a bender, not going on some sort of a vacation. <laughs> but I would say one easy way to do this is to look at what your tax refund was, divide it by the number of paychecks you received, change your withholding so you actually get that amount of money every single paycheck. And at the same time, at the same session at your computer, elect to make an automatic transfer into a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA if you want the tax deduction. That's totally fine for that amount of money and a little bit more if you can add to it. The reason that 401k retirement plans work, and I I don't know if you have access to one or not, but the reason that they work is because the money comes out of your paycheck before you have a chance to see it or touch it or spend it. And so even if you don't have access to one, you can replicate that in your own life by just electing to have a small sum of money transferred out of your checking account as soon as it lands so that even if you do go to the ATM the next day or sign on to your online bank the next day, you don't see it. And when you don't see it and you can't touch it, then you won't spend it. Next question is from Yalda. She has some medical debt she's paying back, but is worried about her credit. She writes, I have a hospital bill which has gone to a collection agency. I have tried to negotiate, but it seems there is no place for that. The collection agency accepts if I pay through a payment plan. It would take me years to finish the plan. The whole debt will be about $10,000. If I choose to pay through the plan to the collection agency, how does it affect my credit? Which way is best to have less damage on my credit? Are there any professionals that provide services regarding negotiation and providing solutions for this issue? Okay, deep breath here, right? There are a lot of things swimming around. And once anything goes to collections, it gets very, very emotional. The other thing to understand is once something goes to collections, it's already hit your credit and it will stay on your credit for a while. You can repay it and you should repay it because that'll get the collectors who can be truly annoying off your case. But in terms of making sure that that comes off your credit, you're just going to have to wait out the clock. As far as how much you have to pay, there absolutely are debt settlement firms out there. That's what they're called. But you potentially don't need them. If you can pull together a sum of money, understand the the collection agency paid pennies on the dollar, most typically, for this medical debt. And so they are trying to get as much as they can, but they're going to make a profit no matter how much they get in most cases. The best way to settle a debt is to come up with a sum of money, a chunk of money that you save, and then you call the collector and you basically say, take it or leave it. This is what I've got. Take it or leave it. And in many, many cases, they will take it. So you've got a $10,000 debt. I try to pull together at least $2,000 before I call them and I make an offer. But then I'd call them and make an offer and see what they have to say. If it doesn't work, you can certainly contract with a debt settlement firm to try to do it for you. But understand, they will charge you for this. So it'll cost you more than doing it yourself. Make sense? Makes sense. 
And our final two questions, the first is on retirement savings. Helen writes, love the podcast question regarding your equation for how much you should be saving for retirement. You state at age 60, you should have eight times your annual salary. My question is, is this your gross salary or your salary less what you are putting away for retirement? Um, okay, so it is your gross salary, but the more that you're putting away for retirement, um, the lower that number actually has to be. And the reason is it's not an exact science. It's a guideline. And these numbers, which were formulated by Fidelity, the 1x, 2x, 3x numbers were formulated by Fidelity, were formulated for people who earn between $50,000 a year and $300,000 a year. If you're earning substantially more than that, the Multiple will come down generally because you're likely putting away, putting more into savings. The other thing to keep in mind about these multiples is that if you have any pension income, you can reduce the amount that you need to save or reduce the multiple. The X factors, as I guess we should start to call them, (laughs) the X factors, are meant to replace 45% of your pre-retirement income. And so if you know, for example, that you've got a pension that's going to replace 15% of your pre-retirement income, then you only have to save enough to cover the other 30% of your income and do the math, which, by the way, I have in my new book, Age Proof, Living Longer Without Running Out of Money or Breaking a Hip. You can see the math laid out there. It works out to being roughly two-thirds of what you would otherwise have had to save. So your 10x multiple at that point becomes like a six and two-thirds multiple which I know is an awful lot of numbers, but if you (laughs) rewind the tape and write it down, I promise you it'll make sense. And our final question is from Mary on Facebook. Is rebalancing still necessary if you have your plan in a target fund? Nope. 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 That's the answer. And and just, yeah, target funds keep you in balance. That's the whole point of a target date fund. It's for lazy people. It's for (laughs) people who are not going to rebalance and who know that they should be keeping their risk reward Mm -hmm. and profile, their risk age profile in line. So no, But the mistake that people often make with target date funds is they put some money in a target date fund and they put other money in something else thinking that they're diversifying and helping themselves. Target date funds, if you're going to do it, that's where you put your money and you don't have to rebalance. Excellent. Thanks so much, Jean. Oh, Kelly, this was fun. We'll do it again soon. Thank you, everybody, for your questions as well. It's really nice to hear from you. And just so you know, we pay very close attention to the different sorts of topics that you're writing us about, and we use that to drive the coverage for her money. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Kelly Peeler for stopping by with that great student loan advice. Very timely student loan advice. Thank you to Kelly Holcren as well for helping gather all of these questions and bringing them to us. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. Leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next time. Erin Lowry is with us. You know her as The Broke Millennial. That's the name of her blog. But she's got a book out by the same title, and she'll be with us to share her story. We'll talk soon. (laughs) 